This is episode 101 of Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Today's guest is the host of the Wally and Mathot podcast, Brent Wallace. Brent shares how he turned being let go from TSN into a small business venture by starting a podcast with former NHL defenseman Mark Mathot. He shares all the insights as to what really goes into running it and how it's been enjoyable so far. He also talks a little bit about his job as a reporter and what he's learned during the course of his career. So sit back and enjoy today's episode. But first, a word from our sponsor. If you're like most people, you strive to eat healthy as much as you can, but it gets really difficult when life gets in the way. We get busy, we're running around doing lots of things. It's hard. Being able to eat healthy on the go is super important more than ever now. And that's why I'm here to tell you about G2G Protein Bars. They're the best protein bar for eating healthy on the go. It's made with all natural ingredients. They're fresh. It tastes like homemade, but it's even better. G2G bars have 18 grams of protein and are gluten-free. With eight different flavors, there's so many different things that you can enjoy about the great tastes of G2G bars and what they have to offer. They're fresh, healthy, and delicious. Make sure to get yours at g2gbar.ca or at your local retailer in Canada or the U.S. Welcome to Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Sit back and enjoy stories and insight from sports icons from all over. Welcome to Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Today, we have a very special guest all the way from the East Coast. Very famous around those parts from Fredericton, New Brunswick, and the co-host of the Wally and Mathot show. It's Brent Wallace. Brent, thanks for joining me today. I'm really glad to talk some puck with you and chop it up. Yeah, my pleasure. Looking forward to it. The NHL season this year has been a little bit wild in a few different aspects around certain divisions. I know the Maple Leafs are always the Maple Leafs and the Canadians have fallen from grace after an amazing Cinderella run. But I I really need to know what your opinion is on the, just the general outlook of the success of Canadian teams. I know that's maybe not necessarily slapped on a one particular season, but this has been something that's roaming around. That's been roaming around in my mind for the last few weeks Wondering, when will we see a Canadian team actually win the Stanley Cup again? Because when you look at (laughs) how close Montreal got to winning last year, and then it all fell apart, and now they're in the basement with the likes of the Arizona Coyotes and the Buffalo Sabres, is there really a great opportunity for a Canadian team to win, do you foresee, in the next few years? I know that the Edmonton Oilers and the Calgary Flames started hot, they cooled down, they're heating back up again. But it seems like a story all too familiar where our hearts are won over by one team across the country that just isn't able to get the job done. Do you have an opinion on thinking one team may actually break the spell soon or it's going to be a long time before we see it again? Toronto is obviously the the front runner to do that. I mean, they've got some pretty good pieces in place. Are they built for the playoffs? I'm not sure. Are they deep enough? I'm not sure. I'm not a huge fan of their blue line. I, I still think it needs work, but... That's probably the first one. And Calgary, the way they were playing of late, they have a bona fide star goaltender. They play well up front. They're mean. They're physical. That's the kind of style you play in the playoffs and win with. I like Calgary a lot more lately. I've just There's always something about Toronto, and we all talk about them not getting out of the first round in like 17 years. There's just something about them that I'm not sold on. Calgary would have the best chance for me. And Edmonton, I think, is just a smokescreen. They see two really good players up front, obviously, and McDavid and Dreisaitl. I don't like the pieces they've got assembled on that in that roster. 
And the Calgary Flames are teams that have been built more for the playoffs than the others you mentioned, the Maple Leafs. It just, the vibes that it gives me is until you can prove that you've won a playoff series, I'm going to expect the same results out of you, which may seem unfair. And Maple Leafs fans may argue, well, the regular season still has merit. And yes, I'm still warranted to get excited. But I mean, like that old saying goes, it doesn't matter how you start the race. It matters how you finish. So the Leafs lose in some disastrous fashion as a fan i'm sure that it would eventually wear you down or i'm sure that you probably have friends who you know growing up in the east coast you don't have uh, one specific team that you have to necessarily cheer for you got some options so i'm sure you grew up with friends that are still suffering me police fans to this day i am one of my very good friends and so we used to bet every game i'm not a sense fan by any stretch i just i hated the leafs so much that we just bet 20 bucks every regular season game i wasn't stupid enough to bet in the playoffs because ottawa always got their clock cleaned by the, the leafs so he basically gave me a whole lot of money every year for about 10 15 years because the leafs just couldn't win in the in the regular season but the leafs like I understand the draw to them. First of all, a third of the country basically lives in in Southern Ontario and all the money is there with all the businesses and corporations. That's why everybody sees the Leafs because they draw the most. I get it. Fine. I don't think I have to like them. And I certainly, I I understand the love affair for them because there's so many Leaf fans. I just don't think they've done a very good job of putting a team together. So yeah, they've done some great regular season things, but winning in the regular season proves nothing. Ottawa used to dominate the regular season in the early 2000s. They got them nowhere. They've had one Stanley Cup final appearance in their entire franchise history. So I I understand that Toronto doesn't, like all the players on the team now weren't on the team 17 years ago and weren't on the team 10 years ago, all that stuff. But recent history, they're still not playing very well as a playoff team. They just don't have that element they need to win in the postseason. And I don't know if they're ever going to find it the way that they're trying to always jam all-star forwards in in that lineup that just don't necessarily pan out to be playoff contending winning hockey players. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And it's been a point of contention, actually, I found amongst some friends and fans, people saying, well, oh, Mitch Marner and these people, they disappear in the playoffs. But you look at it from the business side, it's like, okay, well, I think 31 other NHL teams would love to have these players. It's just, it just seems like a catch-22 situation. Yeah, you have these guys that they do great for, 82 games and all of a sudden they drop off, but at the most inconvenient time for the team. And then they blow a lead to a Habs team that ends up having the most magical run without the cherry on top. And it makes people start to wonder, it's like, well, was Montreal actually a really good team or was it just, they were opportunistic when facing, you know, the blindsided Toronto Maple Leafs and then just carried that momentum through the rest of the playoffs. Look, an amazing the Montreal Canadiens, were never a great hockey team last year. No one looked at the the Habs and went, my God, this is a Stanley Cup contending hockey team. What they did was get hot and they had a really good defense and a goaltender. As long as you can stop people coming into your zone and stop giving up goals, you stand a chance to win one nothing, 2-1, those low-scoring games. The Leafs, on the other hand, are completely opposite. I feel like they need to have four goals a game to make sure that they try and win. Yes, I understand that Jack Campbell has played really well. And I understand that Freddie Anderson was really good last year, but it doesn't matter if you're constantly being shelled by pucks, they're eventually going to get by you. Uh, so Montreal had the team built for the postseason where they could fight and claw their way into those low scoring games. I don't see the same for the Leafs. I see it in a Calgary makeup though. Growing up in the East coast, then who were you actually a fan of when it comes to uh, teams? 
I oh so I was a New York Islander fan for a really long time. Uh, Auto or sorry, Fredericton used to have the Fredericton Express, which was the farm team for Vancouver and the Quebec Nordiques. I never really got behind either one of those teams, and then they eventually left, and the Fredericton Canadians came in, so Montreal's farm team. And it was just around the time in '93 uh, when they started winning, and obviously the Stanley Cup. And that was I, I got on board with them at that point. But the Islanders were always the team I grew up mostly cheering for. I named all my stuffed animals after the New York Islanders. Do you find that that fandom carried differently once you've started to work in the world of sports, or is it still something you hold a little close to you to this day? No, I could care less who wins. So, and even like, like so. People always get this, oh, if you cover one team, you must be a fan of that team. I'll put it to you this way. As a broadcaster doing the broadcast side of the game, so the live game, you want your team to do well. Because when you're doing the interviews and you're talking about the team, you want it to be successful because you want people to watch. If you are a TSN Sports Center reporter, you want that team to be awful. Because the worse it is, the more news it makes, the more it gets on TV, so the busier you are. So over the last few years, I was totally busy because Ottawa is a dumpster fire. And it continues to be while it's getting better. It's still, it's still a struggle. Um, So there's always two sides to play that. So it's tough to wear two different hats. Sometimes in the morning, you'd be like, why is your team so awful in the afternoon? Be like, Hey, they're three Oh and one in their last four. This is great. Um, So that's, I, I, I could care less who wins the Stanley cup year after year. People are always like, I cheer for people. Like there are good friends of mine that used to play for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, there's lots of other guys on other teams. So you'll see them in our podcast. We get to have these guys back on our show because of the relationships we built over the years. I will cheer for Jason Spezza to win the Stanley Cup in Toronto any day of the week because of who he is. Uh, and Chris Kelly's on the bench in, in Boston, and I will cheer for him. Like It doesn't matter who they play for. I'll just cheer for particular people to win. So then when being a father, do you find that if there's no influence of a certain fandom that your kids – as hockey fans will just be like the wild wild west and choose whoever or like how do you no. how, how does that happen no so my daughter who's my oldest was became a pittsburgh penguin fan because i spent so much time in pittsburgh covering Sidney crosby and all the playoff runs then when she was growing up she just always saw me in pittsburgh so i used to have to bring back and find penguins somewhere in the city some stuffed animal my son is a is a sense fan uh and he's met a few players and i'll completely i'm all in for him being a sense fan and whatever i need to do and he's got all kinds of memorabilia and jerseys whatever so he cheers for ottawa but um it i i don't i don't shy him away from cheering i think you should cheer for your hometown team and so um he's met a few guys and he's all in with with team ottawa senators well that's still it's always good to have those teams you cheer for as a kid and if you ever end up working in a job like yours and you don't really have the, the strong feeling of a fandom anymore. It's not necessarily a bad thing. As you mentioned, I think that the great point behind what you're saying is the relationships you have last more than, you know, not to quote Seinfeld's, but the fictitious loving of like laundry, you know, like it's, I love this team because well, why? Because they're from my area or I chose yeah. X arbitrary reason. But when there's people behind wins i think it makes championships and successes a lot more meaningful yeah like ray emery is a perfect example Uh, he won in chicago and i covered ray throughout his career in ottawa and so i'm on the ice when he's got the stanley cup and celebrating with the blackhawks and that was a pretty cool moment so there's been a few of those moments where you're like i'm like super proud of these guys to be able to win because you know the struggle they've gone through to get where they are 
with the recent venture that you've started with the Wally and the Thought Show, you guys have had quite a successful run so far, having an amazing, amazing lineup of guests, as well as being able to have lots of creative freedom in what you guys do. What could you say simply about how it's felt to be able to do whatever you like with the show that you guys have created? It's probably more stressful because now you you have a blank canvas. You're not told what to do and cover. Not not saying that TSN told me what I had to cover, but you knew you're going to the Ottawa Senators today to do this or do that. We can do whatever we want. That part's kind of fun. Uh, it's also daunting. You you want to still serve the viewers of the listeners the best way you can. And so that's with the best content. So I'm busier now than I ever was trying to make sure we find the guests. You know, it's tough to always book guests, as you know. Sometimes stuff happens and they cancel it right away and you're trying to find someone else to fill that or if it's on a holiday, all that stuff. Like last weekend, I think I spoke to 20 different people trying to line them up as guests uh, for a particular show. That stuff gets to be tough. But when it comes to content, like Meth and I really get along really well and we have opposing views on a lot of different things. And so being when you get that, you get a pretty good mix. And it's been pretty good for us to be able to just talk about hockey but have opposing views um, and he's, he's been really good. Like he's, he's really articulate. He knows the game really well. He understands it and he can articulate it to every person, to the common person. That's what makes that, I, I think that's what makes the show pretty good. Anyway. It's kind of funny how you said, Oh, well, now that we actually have the creative freedom to do what we want, it's even more stressful because we have to go and reach out to people and do all these different things. And are the chef cook and bottle washer of our entire yeah. operation, which People may not always necessarily see from the outside. They may think, oh, well, this is great and you can do what you want and it's chill, but it's like having no boss. Like, yeah, you have no boss, but that means that you are your own boss. You actually have to make yeah. sure that you kick your own ass into gear and are disciplined to take care of what you need to take care of. Then no one's going to make it cookie cutter for you. Well, and that's like we have, we're lucky. Uh, Craig is our producer who's done a lot of work with the Ottawa Senators. Uh, he's kind of our secret weapon. We've got a, a few other guys in the background that help as well, but We've basically set up a small business. I didn't know I was going to, I had to deal with the IRS in the US, which is a little daunting when it comes to setting up YouTube and whatnot. Um, all this stuff I had no idea about, you know, getting a t shirt deal or finding sponsors and all. Like, it's a constant uh, work day, if you will. I, I just, I'm, I work all the time. It's like being an entrepreneur. And it, it it's, it's exactly what it yeah. is. Yeah. So if you don't do it, nobody's going to do it for you. So either you get out of bed and get to work or nothing's going to happen. So that's what we're trying to do. And we got, we, I mean, we've been lucky. We've been very supported by the community here. We, we did a golf tournament. It sold out. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, we were able to raise money for charity. And so we've done a few of those things where the, they've really gotten behind us. And so the community here has been huge. When you reflect now on what the venture is that you guys are a part of, and its potential as the years go on this, it must be so crazy to like not even really be able to fathom before. Well, this was possible and to, to have endless possibilities to do different things with, you know, like a small business or have a charity golf tournament or get a sponsorship or t-shirt deals, whatever, like it might seem more stressful and busy, but I'm sure that it feels a lot more, rewarding in the long term when it comes to a lot more possibility with what you can do it's sometimes the the one issue is uh and i have a struggle with this is like minor setbacks 
So whether it's just business sponsorship deals that don't transpire or you have interviews line up that don't happen or you get told no enough times, I'm not used to that. So that becomes a huge stumbling block for me of trying to get over people rejecting you in a way. Uh, so you have to learn from that. I will say like the learning curve on this has been really steep, uh, but it's like, yeah, it's been fun. Like we have, we have t-shirts with our names on it because the gong show would, uh, is a hundred million dollar company that sold over a hundred million dollars in merchandise wanted us to come on board and make t-shirts for us. And that's, that feels really neat. We got a logo, we got all kinds of fun stuff, but it's still daunting that if, if you don't continue to build it, it's not going to get built. And that's, I mean, that's the same for every small business. Um, trying to do it in a pandemic is another challenge for sure. Uh, it's, you know, everybody's trying to save their pennies a little bit, but uh, we're working through it. Like it's, it's kind of neat to see all the stuff that you can do and what's possible. You just got to keep building towards it. Did you ever envision yourself being cut out for this kind of work when you started your career? Oh, I didn't think I was a very good reporter when I started. So, um, no, I didn't envision any of this. I did say, so here's the story. When I was at broadcasting school in Halifax in 1993, um, Alex J. Walling, was the school's owner. And he was also the TSN reporter for the Maritimes. And uh, he got me a volunteer job uh, doing the Atlantic Bowl TSN broadcast. I was in the booth. I was helping the great uh, Leif Pedersen. I was a spotter for him. And, uh, and John Wells was the play-by-play guy. And John Wells was always super nice to me throughout my career. Anyway, um, I got them to sign the back of my pass that year. And it was Wellesley who signed it. And, he, and I said, I'll be at TSN in five years. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, so he said, uh, all the best. See you at TSN in five years, John Wells. I got hired in 1998, which was five years later. So um, did I envision it? I, I guess I was probably just more cocky than anything, but I was lucky enough to uh, eventually find my way to TSN. Did you buy a lottery ticket the same day? <laughs> no, I, I, I had to dig it up. I still have the pass somewhere. I should probably get it framed because the ink is starting to fade, but uh, it was always, I guess, the cool moment where you're the the youngest reporter to be hired by TSN in the history at the time. And so um, you're 24. I remember talking to my boss. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing here. Like, I don't know why you hired me. And there was a few of those moments. And he's like, just settle down. You'll be fine. And uh, it worked out for the most part. Do you think that was a little bit of imposter syndrome or like, or was it just yeah. awareness? No, like a total imposter. Like, yeah, I remember my first, so TSN, I had worked in Montreal the year before Global. And then, so I'm, it's August uh, 1998 and TSN's like, you're going to go do your first story, but you're covering the Alouettes and the Stampeder CFL game in Montreal. I'm like, all right, cool. I'll just go back to where I was. I remember doing my first story and I never had any conversations with any producers. Like, you're going to, this is how we put our stories together and none of that stuff. And I, it ended up being that I spent like three and a half hours writing this story with, I think it was three different producers by the time it got done. And it was like four minutes long. Well, normal stories are two minutes long and they're like two VOs and a couple of clips. This was like seven VOs and what I was like, I don't know what I'm doing here. Uh, eventually it got cut down and was fine. But I was like, Do it, what? It, like, that was the thing. Like, what am I gotten into? I don't know what I'm doing. So you just, sometimes you got just got to roll with it and learn, learn a little bit. It gets daunting every once in a while. Being in that position, it imposter syndrome is something that I find is really, really difficult to deal with at times because you want to believe in yourself and be confident to know, Hey, I can do this. 
But then there can be overwhelming thoughts of, oh, well, why me? Or, or people don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. How did you eventually conquer it over the first few years of your career? Or do you feel like you ever fully conquered it? I just didn't pay any more attention. Like eventually you're covering the Olympics and you're covering, you know, steroid hearings on Capitol Hill and you're doing all the big stories. At some point you just got to go. Yeah, I'm qualified to do the job. So that's all it came down to. It's like, they're not going to send you if they don't believe you can do the job because at TSN and at, and I'll say Sportsnet's the same. You don't have a bunch of people traveling with you. You have a camera guy and yourself, and you're going everywhere around the world to cover these stories. It's not like you can depend on anybody else. If you can't get it done, they'll find somebody who can. Uh, and that's all they like. Hey, Brent, you're going to New York today. You cover the lockout or you're doing this. Like there are times I can remember cleaning my garage one day and they called and it was like at 11. They're like, can you come in today to host sports center? We've had a guy call in sick. So, you know, an hour later, I'm at the airport getting ready to go host Sports Center. If they don't believe you can do that stuff, they're not bringing you in. What were some of your favorite memories of different places and events that you went to cover? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Uh, the covering, so I, I did the 2010 Olympics. I covered men's hockey for that. So that was pretty cool, except the day before the gold medal game, they sent me back to Toronto because I had to host Sports Center. So I never got to actually cover the gold medal game. Um, I'm not bitter about that. Um, 2012 Summer Olympics was phenomenal. That was that's probably the best experience. And then it's always the places you go. It's never really the events that per se. Like I did all over Europe. I did Russia. Um, I did Belarus. Like there was a lot of cool places you just get to go to that you'll never. I'll never book a trip to Belarus, but being in Minsk for like three weeks was a pretty cool experience. So um, World Juniors in Ufa, Russia was was an experience for sure. Uh, as I said, the steroid hearings on Capitol Hill, when you've got Roger Clemens and Brian McNamee, and then they had another hearing with Kirk Schilling and Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire. Um, that was just a surreal moment where it's just different. That's, and so that stuff is kind of fun. Um, I remember the horse, big Brown, not big Brown. It was a big Brown who was about to race for the triple crown. And he was at Belmont and they sent me in. So when you cover events that you don't really cover, it's, it's fun because it's different. Uh, so I'm like, I'm not worried about the power play or how the penalty kill is going to work today. I'm covering a horse uh, and he's sponsored by Hooters. So there's these two Hooters girls walking him around and there's all these photographers and you like, it's like he knew it because he would always just turn his head and kind of smile at the camera in a way. Uh, I've always remembered that. So there's always been those kind of moments. There's been some others where there they'll just be experiences because of how the travel day unfolded or whatever, but there's been some neat stuff along the way for sure. If there was one destination that you could have went to that you never had the opportunity to recover to cover as a reporter, which where would you have gone? Ah, that's a good one. So I was asked, I think it was Oh four, the Oh four British open. I was supposed to go cover, but at the time, I think if bell had just bought uh, TSN and they canceled all the travel for that year. So we didn't get to go. So I never got to cover the British open. Um, that would have been a fun one for sure um there's been a few places in europe i just like to get to like i always wanted to cover uh moscow or leningrad um some of those places that are just different that you just never get to go to i so every year the world championships came up i always wanted to go because it was always in a cool spot um that maybe you're not going to travel to well do you think that you ever might make it out someday with uh whatever venture may be existing uh, exist for you at the time or maybe you know wally and Mathot do europe and you guys go all the yeah. way to Leningrad. 
we'll, we'll lose meth somewhere along the way. Um, I, it's a good question. I, I haven't traveled. So I, there were times that I think I spent 180 days on the road, I think was the most I've done in a year. Um, and I looked the other day just on hotels at one, like at Starwood, I'd spent over seven years in hotels. Uh, so it's the numbers even higher than that, but I, like, I haven't traveled since March, 2020. I, I'm, I would love to get out somewhere and go do something, but we'll see how this venture grows. And as you know, that the media changes and everything changes quickly in a heartbeat. So I, who knows if we're still doing this show in a year, I think I'd like to, but everything changes quickly. When it comes to having a family and being a father, what are some of the best things and the toughest things about the job that you did? Ah, uh, so that one's easy. Cause you just miss a lot. I just missed a ton of stuff. Um, I missed my, for my daughter's first steps and my wife tried to hide it and say, no, no, no. These are the first steps. And later, later she's like, no, they were three days ago. Um, my kids thought my name was Brent Wallace, TSN Ottawa, uh, because that's all they saw on TV. They just, they were, and they would try to kiss the TV. So we had to buy, and I'm older than you. So we had to buy a PVR, I think at the time. So uh, my wife could pause the TV so they could both give me a kiss. If one got to and the other one didn't, they would be held to pay. So uh, those moments I miss. Um, but it was cool to like, I could take them places and they could meet people that they normally wouldn't get to meet or they, they would get special perks of just being around me or whatever. Trust me, not that great, but they were just different. And uh, that was always some of the fun stuff we get to do. Like I had Ryan Dezingle come out to my kids hockey practice one time. And that's always been something they've talked about for a long time. That's, that was pretty cool to have an NHL player at your kids hockey practice. Would you say that ranks in amongst the top moments of your, like being a dad you can reflect on, or are there more ones that uh, the top that? It's a good question. I haven't thought of that one. That's uh, that's an out of the box question for me. Uh, that would be one for sure. I, there's a lot along the way. The best moments are always the quiet moments when you're like my kid and I drive to hockey and he's got like hockey three times a week. And it's always about a half hour to an hour away. Those drives in the car are always the, probably the best times when you just get to have chats. And now that he's older and you can have conversations about world issues or whatever, it makes the conversations a lot more entertaining. I don't know if this is too out of the box for you, but I need to ask what has been so far your most proud moment as a father. <gasps> yeah, that is out of the box. Um, my like my kids are really well behaved and they're really good they're smart and they all that stuff they get from my wife and i take little credit because i wasn't around very much so that's a tough one for me but i know like uh one of the teachers one day saw my son open the my my mother-in-law had shown up at the school and my kid went out and made sure he opened the door for her and made sure he walked her in and whatever like those little moments where you see that they're actually going to be good people those are probably the proud moments Have you ever got to enjoy any great games or, I mean, I'm sure maybe just hockey games or games that they're involved with. It's very few uh, because I was at so many. So I just went to a game here the other day. It was the first time I've gone to a Sens game, not as a member of TSN or anything. And I think that was like the third or fourth NHL game I've seen not uh, working as just a fan. So I haven't, there hasn't been a lot like, I got to see Doc uh, Doc Halliday pitch Doc Halliday yeah uh, Roy Halliday pitch in Boston one time, um, but there's not been a lot like 
but you get to see them differently. Like I've done some NFL. I've done the NFC playoffs. So like Tim Tebow was against Tom Brady. Uh, that was just an interesting one. Uh, and then World Cups or World Championships. Uh, and I've done a few outdoor games. Like the very first outdoor game was Sidney Crosby, the Winter Classic in Buffalo. Like that was a pretty cool experience. So you're there as a reporter, but you still kind of, you get to watch it and see it unfold. You just don't see it with the lens of a, a fan, more of a, a reporter where you're just trying to make sure you don't miss what's going on. Who was your favorite athlete when you were a kid? My, Mike Bossy, probably. Yeah, for the New York Islanders. I was a huge fan of his. Also, when I became a goalie, Billy Smith, I had a black coho goalie stick, just like Billy Smith. So that was pretty cool for me. But uh, probably those two, if I, if I think about it. I, I always find it an interesting question to ask people because sometimes there's people don't really reflect on it that much or when they think back to who they love this in their childhood compared to now, like it, it's vastly different. And I think that the, the root of people's love for sport in childhood can have a really profound impact on how you view the game when you're older. I mean, jobs can always change that, but yeah. at least when it comes to events like the Stanley cup finals or the world cup in soccer, those are the ones that I find always stick out the most. You can remember what, I mean, oh, I don't know if you or if you would have watched, or I guess, would you have been an Islanders fan because of watching them win four in a row or would that have been before your time? No, that's because basically they were always on TV. So mm. when you grow up with three channels uh, and there's only hockey night in Canada on Saturday nights, it's either Montreal, Toronto, I guess Boston, but the Islanders would always be on because of the playoffs. And so that's eventually how that happened. Okay. So then you didn't get to watch the Islanders win the finals. Yeah, yeah. So I was born in 73 and they started winning in 80. So it was right right in the wheelhouse of me being young. Yeah. Well, that's fair. And then Montreal Canadiens won again right before you shipped off to broadcasting school and then didn't have to worry about being a hardcore fan of any team. So perfect timing. It was, but it was surreal, I will say, to walk into the Montreal dressing room that first time just because you're 22, 23 years old and you're just like, I'm now inside the Montreal Canadiens dressing room where, you know, you've grown up obviously watching and all of that stuff. So that was one of those surreal moments. I want to ask about the transition that you had between working at CSN and now doing the Wally and Method show, because that's something that is, it's, it's difficult or a difficult reality of the industry when yeah. people have been doing great work for a long time and they don't get to ride off into the sunset or transition, I guess, smoothly from the outside. There's always things that happen behind the scenes, but what was the day like when you heard the news and how did you deal with it initially within the first few weeks? So uh, I, it was, so Tuesday they laid off a bunch of people on February the 2nd, but I knew that our, C-level employees was the next day on. So we went Tuesday at three. I did a hit with Rod Smith here uh, at my house about the Sens on something. Uh, and then it was about seven o'clock at night and I was preparing for the next Sens game. And I was just on my laptop and I got an email conference call. And I looked and I'm like, I'm the only one on it. And it's like business development tomorrow at 10, 15 AM. And knowing what I knew it was coming, I was like, I, I can see where this is. So 
uh, my wife had just come in the house with my kids. I think they were out grocery shopping or something. I didn't obviously want to make a big deal. So I just sent my wife a text. I'm like, I think I'm getting fired tomorrow. Um, and so we exchanged texts in a way just so that I, I just didn't want to alarm the kids. And then 10, 15, the next day, they basically told me you're done. Um, it was a very short conversation. And then if you've ever, I think it's up in the air is the movie and they, it's where George Clooney goes around. I think and he, he lets people go as an HR person, whatever. And there's that scene where they start telling you, uh, this is so-and-so from HR. Here's your package. Here's, we've set up, you can do these services and here's who's going to help you transition. And you're just like, it's a blur. Like, I know I'm supposed to be watching it on my, they're like, if you can open your computer to the email and I'm like, I just don't want any part of you right now. But anyway, they said, you got 15 minutes and then we're going to wipe your phone. So I lost all my contacts because I, I just couldn't, at that moment, I just couldn't function. I knew it was coming. And I still couldn't function. So um, because it was COVID, my kids were home from school. So I didn't want them to find out on social media. So I went in and, and told them. And then my daughter was worried that we might lose our house. And so you've got to go through all those emotions. Um, and you're trying to be, hey, it's okay. We'll be, we'll be fine. Um, and then there's about four straight days of my phone blowing up uh, and people calling. And I, there was a, lots of people. And I had to respond to a bunch with, I don't know who this is because I lost all my contacts. So I just had phone numbers. I'm like, I'm sorry. Um, who are you, basically? Anyway, uh, I got through the four days, uh, which seemed to be really tough. Probably the first week. Uh, a lot of tears shed. Just, just you're in shock. And then you're now you're scrambling to figure out what you're going to do. And I think it was around the fourth day, my wife said, why don't you call Meth and talk to him and see um, if you guys can do a podcast together. And that's what I did. And then we started working at it from there. Was Meth one of your, your closest friends at the time? No, no. Like we'd known each other. I, I mean, when he played for the Sens, we had talked and um, we had done some world championships together. And, and when I was still, when he was still playing for the Sens up until 2017, he was asked by TSN to come on board and work the playoffs and be part of the broadcast team, but he didn't want to do it until he was done playing. Um, and so like I'd known him a little bit more than I've known other guys outside of hockey, just the media and a player, just, they don't work well as friends. Um, and so my daughter ironically had a Mathot Jersey. That was the player she cheered for the most when he played for the Sens. And so um I just call him and he said, Wally, I've been waiting for your call. Like, let's do this. So he was looking for something to do. And so was I. And so was Craig for that matter. And that's how that all transpired. Oh, and as fate would have it, you guys were able to come together and the news team did in fact assemble. And you guys hmm. now have the show that stands to this very day with lots of great content. And it's, I, I was going to ask, when when it comes to those decisions that they make, and I saw a lot of backlash, at least from from people who are my age or who are like entering the industry, and they were like, "Well, like the whole the whole bell let's talk day." But then on the flip side, like you know, you're toast. Give me your phone. See you. Bye. Like boot out the door. A lot of conflicting emotions that I saw from people who haven't like they haven't even gotten to like they haven't even started, and I was. And it was really just interesting to observe and, and difficult in a lot of ways. But when they have meetings with people about those kinds of decisions, like, do they ever really give like a genuinely true explanation as to no. their decision? Or it's just like, you have to speculate or do, you don't have to, it's just, 
this is it and see you later. So I spent 23 years at TSN and my phone call with my boss amounted to about 40 seconds. And he read a couple of lines and uh, I said, can you tell me why? And he said, it's a business decision. And here's the HR person. Uh, Take care. So 15 minutes later, there's no trace of me whatsoever on the website anywhere. Like it's like, I never existed. So that was a, that was tough for me because I did everything. Like I dropped stuff in a heartbeat to go cover all these events and volunteered when other people didn't want to go. I'm like, yeah, I'll go do it. I like my first Christmas tree topper. So when 98, when I got hired was a TSN mic flash, like I was all in. So, um, and I always joke, like if I ever got fired, I would have to get a whole new wardrobe. And basically I did because everything I owned had a TSN monogram on it somewhere. So that was, that was tough. Like, for Dan O'Toole and I and Natasha, we had all had conversations afterwards and Dan and I still talk. And it was, I don't know, like two or three days later, somewhere in there, like Bell announced they had record profits. Like that stuff stings when you're told it's a business decision and that the company's posting, you know, an $800 million fourth quarter or whatever it was. So um, there's a little bit of obviously bitter resentment, um, but they made it a choice. Like that's, I guess that's their right. And you move on. And I like, and I will say one thing, and that is I'm very fortunate to be able to do what I did for 23 years. Like what a ride it was. It was, it was phenomenal. I got like the amount of stuff that I got to cover and see and do uh, because of being there was, was second to none. So for that, I'm very thankful. I'm just a little bitter that they ended my job and then they hired somebody else to replace me. Would you say that you have any regrets from your time there? It's a good question. Not really. I don't really have like regrets is tough. Like either you have the experience and you learn from it or you, you don't. Right. And I I don't really have any regrets. Like I could say, well, I wish I'd spent more time with my family, but I love traveling. I, I, I loved being on the road. I, I was more comfortable sleeping in a hotel bed than in my own bed at one point. And so I don't really have any regrets. Like I got to do some pretty cool stuff that not many people get to do. And I got to do it basically for free or get paid to do it. Well, I mean, it's that the, the, this realm of, of the industry is, I've, again, I, I'll, it's something that's going to be beaten to death of people continue to talk about in conversations, but um, I feel like there's a bit of analogy between professional sports and working in the sports industry, even if you're not an athlete, the only difference maybe being that your potential for a career lasts way longer because it doesn't depend on your physical abilities, but when it comes to especially sport like football, it always seems like, you know, as soon as organizations can go cheaper and younger, that that's the way they're going to go on, unfortunately for sure. the person in that position. But, um, but you just, but in, I will say in sport, if you are still at the top of your game, they're not going to replace you for the most part. So that's the one problem I had is that they didn't replace me because I wasn't very good at what I did. And, that bugs me. So, um, had I been really terrible, at least, at least I don't think I was bad. So maybe, maybe I was, it just didn't realize it, but I like, I was the Eastern reporter for the national hockey league for TSN. Like I was the only reporter that was an anchor. Like I did lots of stuff. So I don't think it was my work. So that's the only thing that bothers me is you didn't do this based on my work. Do you ever think you would take a job in the industry for another company again, or you'd rather, yeah, you would. 
Yeah, it's just you're, like you're a middle-aged guy right now. That's not the demographic that they're trying to hire for. So I understand. I'm, and so that becomes the tough part. But there's been a there's obviously there's a huge shift in the way people are consuming media and how they're doing it online. Um, and so I think that we're about to see perhaps a shift in how that all plays out. Um, so maybe we're on the right side of this. We might be ahead of the curve. At least I keep trying to tell myself that. Uh, but we'll see where it lands. I think I think we'll be all right. I think this is where eventually you'll see probably the media landscape get to. But um, there's those companies have lots of money to keep afloat uh, doing traditional broadcasting. And by the, the shift, you'd be referring to people creating content and doing things on on their own? Yeah. Like there's... so. You can see people like the Ray and Drake show, uh, their podcast is phenomenal. They put it on the TSN website. It's also aired on the radio here on the weekends. Like they're taking that content and putting it back on either a traditional market or in a, uh, a radio standard broadcast market. Like the stuff that, that's being created online is just another avenue. And there's a need for more content. People are consuming more content. They're just finding different ways to do it. Uh, you, I can point to all kinds of numbers that say it's the first time ever that people have watched more online than they have traditionally. So you're seeing a shift and I, I, the broadcasters are slow to react to it right now. That's the one thing they're just behind trying to figure out how to monetize the online part of it. And with looking at the demographic that is, or I guess the younger demographic are very involved with like TikTok and Instagram and still Twitter, still popular to some degree. And, creating YouTube channels. And I think it's fun to dabble in those ventures and to figure out how to use it. And at the same time, when that becomes the traditional, the quote unquote traditional standard, then eventually something else will probably come along to replace. And I think that's part of what makes it fun, but also scary at the same time, knowing that the landscape will continue to change and you just have to learn to adapt with it. Yeah, but the one standard and all that will be everybody's going to have a phone that they can watch or listen on. Everybody's going to have a computer for the most part. People are cutting cable left and right, as a, if you will. Like, I don't have the numbers, to, but I do know that it's obviously drastically reducing. Um, so that's that'll be the difference. That's where the line is that people can just take your phone and look up anything they want and watch the content they want to watch. So if you want to watch an Ottawa Senator broadcast or a podcast, you're going to tune into us. If you want an Edmonton Oiler one, you're going to go somewhere else. That's what it becomes. So you get to pick and choose the content you want to listen to. Well, Brent, we are getting towards the end of our time on today's episode. So I'll ask you a few more wrap-up questions, have a little bit more fun before we part for today. All right, hit me. Who are the three funniest people you got to work with at TSN? Oh, Jay Onright. Uh, this is a great question. This isn't going to be very rapid fire because I need to think about this. Uh, Jay, Dan O'Toole, he, like he and I anchored one show together. I thought it was pretty entertaining. Um, good question. My, uh, Mike Johnson's pretty funny. If you were to live in another city in Canada, money's not an issue. doesn't matter. You can just plop your family and everything works out fine. Where would you go? Uh, Vancouver. I did actually, that would be the place I'd want to live in. But I, I asked at one point to go to Calgary and cover Calgary flames and switch bureaus. Uh, Jermaine Franklin wasn't there at the time. Um, and so I thought of doing Calgary would be fun, but it, was, it would definitely probably be Vancouver to live in though. 
What's your favorite movie? Favorite three movies of all time? Because favorite could be could be difficult. Oh, uh, Top Gun will be there. Uh, everybody picks the Shawshank Redemption, but it's a really good movie. Elf. Really. <laughs> I, I I have to. My my wife loves Christmas movies. Every year she records them all on the Hallmark Channel. I will give in if we can watch Elf because it's the I, to me it's the funniest Christmas movie. That's a fair trade. I, I like uh, Will Ferrell. I, he's done some pretty to me. He's done some pretty good stuff. I think it gets tiring after a bit, but I like Anchorman and Elf and Talladega Nights. There's some there's some pretty good movies. That is true. Will Ferrell has definitely created a lot of classics. And the ones you listed are absolutely hilarious, especially Anchorman. That's that's uh, a cult classic for sure. And I think will be for a long time. And I mean, making reference to the news team assemble, seeing the very first clip you guys posted on Instagram, the edits yeah. of you with, with Wally, I think is just or with method is just I, I think it was I thought it was just super funny. Like the yeah, pop that's culture a, that's references. That's what Greg does. Yeah. It, yeah. The pop culture references combined with your content is to me, that's that's my favorite to consume for sure. Yeah, it that's the stuff that's entertaining. We're trying to get into building more of that. Um, we're trying to figure, even still, we're almost a year in trying to get our feet on the ground to figure out what works, how to do it, how to best manage the time. So, as you know, like it's not you just don't sit down and record and that's it, you're done. So, we're trying to figure out new stuff, new ways to do it, and come up with some different ideas. What's your favorite holiday? Sheesh. Uh, I don't know. Christmas, I guess. <laughs> Free agent day. I used to like, I was in, I mean, you know, the nation's capital have never been on Parliament Hill. Um, and now with Canada Day, I can, I can go down now, but it used to be like we worked every Canada Day covering the free agent frenzy. So um, I'll say maybe I get to experience Canada Day for one. So free agent day. I used to always get a new tie for trade deadline day. Uh, that was always my thing for trade deadline day. So the, I know the finance minister always gets new shoes for a budget day. And I always got a new tie for trade deadline day. What's the most memorable trade deadline day in your career so far? Uh, that's a good question. There's been a couple. One was, um, was in Carolina and getting ready to do our hit and my phone got shut off. And I'm panicking because now I can't talk to anybody. Bell had shut my phone off because TSN hadn't paid the bill and there was too much roaming charges at the time. Uh, and so we're trying to argue with our own company to turn my phone back on. So that was one. Um, there's uh, They t- blend together sometimes, like bringing in Tom Barrasso. I think a trade deadline day was an interesting one. Um, that's a good question. There's a few along the way. And I won't be able to remember them all, but... Um, traveling to different places. I'm being in Boston. Uh, we, so we had to stay at the hotel cause you always stay wherever the team is. So if the, if the sends are traveling, you just stay at that team hotel. And usually all day you just wait in a room. Uh, I opened a closet. We were in a boardroom type and there was this gigantic stuffed bear. And I just remember bringing it out and basically laying on it. Uh, cause it was like a pillow. Uh, but there was just weird stuff along the way that you get to enjoy every once in a while. That was the only time I got to meet Jermaine Franklin when he was in Calgary. The Flames were, the Sens were there for trade deadline day. Uh, and we were in the same hotel. And I was like, hey, nice to finally meet you. And my final question for you is if you were to interview any single person that has nothing to do with sports, 
on the Wally and, uh, and Method podcast, who would it be? That's a great question. Oh, I'd like to do a world leader. Uh, like, like Bill Clinton would be interesting to me. Um, Barack Obama. There's a couple, like something like that, where it's just different and out of the norm. I would probably take a world leader. I was during the 2012 Olympics in London. Uh, we bumped into literally walking across the street. Um, Dave Cameron, who was the prime minister of Great Britain at the time. So we did an interview with him. Um, but that would, yeah, that would be kind of neat to talk to probably Bill Clinton or Barack Obama. And with that, Brent, I want to thank you for having been on today's episode. It was a great joy to talk with you about your time covering hockey, the new venture that you guys got going on with the great pod, as well as reflecting on some of the times that weren't as fun, but how things have transpired and the lessons that you've taken with you from the first part of your career into the next part of your career. Yeah. Yeah. And something's good to do something different every once in a while. So I appreciate it. Thanks buddy. And thank you to listener for enjoying today's episode with the co-host of the Wally and Mathot podcast, Brent Wallace. First and goal from the one. This is it. Stiegel. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Check out our social media pages for more at huddleup underscore MB. For full audio, head over to Spotify and Apple Podcasts. For full video, head over to YouTube at Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Tune in next week for another great episode. See you next time.